0: Lord, Father, we just thank you, Lord. We just thank you that you gave us a place, give us strength, you made a way, and we have come together in your name. You said in your word, grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of God. You said in your word, as you see that day approaching, Do not stop gathering as some have done. We have come together, Lord, believing you will continue to teach us that we learn more of you, that the more we learn of you, the more we learn to love you, because there is no one like you. Once again, we pray, open the eyes of our understanding. That we might know you. Speak Father. Teach us Lord. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you were there on Sunday. We saw the incredible promise. God had given Solomon. Knowing that his people would go away. Wander away. Stray away. Go into captivity. And then he gave a promise saying that. If. My people, if, you, if you're if you here on a Wednesday, it's almost sure you are his people. Sundays you are never sure, but Wednesdays also I'm not very sure. Okay. <laughs> but if my people were called by my name, and he said, if you humble yourself, pray and seek my face. And turn from your wicked ways. Okay, so God, there are seven things I said there are. There four things he asks us to do. Three things he promises to do. But it's all connected with seeking his face. That's the whole thing. is connected with seeking his face. If my people actually seek my face. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus in the New Covenant will also talk about seeking. We know that very familiar words. Uh, But don't let it become too familiar. Seek first. Okay, seek first. We are here in his house. Many will hear on the net. Like everybody doesn't seek the same thing the same way. It depends upon actually what's in our heart. We don't even realize our priorities unless something takes place. Let me give you an example, a okay? very simple example. Will tell you how people view things differently. This happened in 1991, okay, in New York City, where the subways pass by trains, okay, pass by. Same day, around the same place, there was an accident. Not the train had an accident, but a homeless man and a railway train worker and a dog was killed on the subway tracks. 93 people who had seen it at different times, I guess, I don't know, called the authorities talking about what had happened. Nine, how many people? Ninety-three people. Ninety of them called about the dog. Three people called about the railway worker. None called about the homeless man. Okay? It just tells us the state of our heart, actually. Actually, okay, state of our heart. It is a judgment not about the people who died in an accident, but the people who saw and their response. So when God says seeking, please remember, we have all goals and priorities in life, and almost most are very earthly. They have to do with here and now and this life. Very few about the life to come. So when God says seek, everyone seeks According to the priorities we have set unconsciously in our life. And it's only when things like that happen and our responses actually show what are we seeking. So when Jesus talks about seeking, He's talking about seeking first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And sometimes the mistake has been from preachers because the gospel It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. Not the world of man. Not about the here and the now and the life here. It is about the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom and eternity. So the preacher should not go wrong. The preaching of the gospel is about the kingdom of God. Okay? But when he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, God who is coming and telling us it's God Okay, please remember this always you see in scripture and in history it is God who seeks man first man never seeks God it's God who seeks man first and to every man there are two choices we can make we can either draw near or we can resist God's call It is God who sought Adam out in the garden. Not Adam when he fell seeking God. It is God. Therefore the first question is, Where are you? But Adam resisted God's call. It was God who sought Cain when he saw first in his heart him going wrong and then in his action when he went wrong. It was God who sought him out and said, Why are you angry? Sin is crouching at the door. Remember, Cain... Resisted. On the other hand, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, all these people are people who did not resist, always make the first move. But he also has said in the same scripture that his spirit will not contend with man forever. It is not that forever he will keep calling. He will, after some time, he will give up. He'll say, it's okay, it's enough. It's no, no need. I've been calling you for years together. Your time is up. Okay, I'm telling you children, be very careful. A day will come when God will not speak to us anymore. Okay, that's what happened to King Saul and all and the Proverbs and all talks about it. Okay. So throughout the pages of the Bible, you and I see God seeking and man's response. But the greatest call of God is from the cross. The atonement is the greatest act of God. The cross. Seeking man out. God seeks man out through his son, Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, in Hebrews chapter 1, 1, "And God who in various times, different times in history, and in different ways, various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. That's his last call. God says, there is nobody more important left for me to seek your face. To call you. The final call to you is through my son. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Through whom also he made the worlds. He says, I am making my final call through the crown prince. That is why also the warning in the same letter in Hebrews 2 verses 1 to 3. Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which was first spoken to by whom? The Lord. He's the first one. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is. Salvation is about the kingdom of God. It is not about the kingdom of man. That's why Jesus comes and says, Seek ye first. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, and seek my face. Okay? seeking, And he put in his own words, Jesus in his own words, That when God seeks. And genuinely. When a person responds. Genuinely. This should be our response. So when you see through the pages of the Bible. Jesus talking and say Lord. Help me to respond this way. In Matthew 13 verse 44. Again the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Hidden in a field. Which a man found and hid. For the joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has. And buys this field. Okay? All. Another all has come. All that he has. In other words, Jesus is saying, would you be willing to exchange everything in this life for the life that is coming? That's what he's actually saying. It's not about quitting your job or anything like that. It's not that. But you're putting everything on the line and say i am willing to give up everything here for everything there that's what he's talking about okay this does not mince words he's a very very honest preacher so let me make something clear again about the kingdom of god the gospel of the kingdom of god salvation saying a prayer in itself does not save anyone A salvation prayer is like a guide that leads us in our decision. Many who say the sinner's prayer is no closer to salvation than the world around. On the other hand, what I call the formula for salvation can blind people To the genuine need for Christ. Okay? We try to put the kingdom of God into formulas. Repeat this prayer after me. And you are saved. Can actually blind you to the need of Christ. Desperate need of Christ in our life. Because salvation is actually an act of faith. It's an act of? We are saved by? Grace. True faith, only through faith. Now let me tell you one particular nature of faith. If that is not there, then my faith, your faith, everybody's faith is false. There's one incredible facet, nature about faith, which makes it true, genuine. That's why our faith is constantly tested. This is that nature of that faith. True faith, true faith is the greatest evidence of true humility. True faith is the greatest evidence of true humility. If my people who are called by my name, what do they do first? Humble themselves. Because what is true faith? True faith is total, absolute dependence on the wisdom, the understanding, the power, and the strength of someone else and not yours. It's absolute dependence upon the wisdom of God, the power of God, and the strength of God. That's true faith. And you will take true humility to trust somebody like that. Understand that. Okay. The poor in the spirit is an actual, an attitude of humility. That's what God says the first one, blessed are the poor in the spirit. That's why, look at how Jesus puts it across. I mean, you cannot beat Jesus when it comes to examples, okay? At that time, the Jesus, disciples came to Jesus saying, who is then the greatest in the heaven, kingdom of heaven? Okay? Who is the greatest? So God will say the greatest is the usually will be the most humble, okay? So Jesus called a little child to them, set him in the midst of them, and said, "Assuredly, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like little children. What did he say? He says, when true conversion takes place, you become like little children. You don't become childish, but you become like little children. You will know by means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child. That is what he's talking about. A child, not today's child, those days' child. Okay? Child is associated naturally with humility. Natural humility. It's a very powerful statement. Here Jesus is not talking about the innocence of the child or the ignorance of the child. He's talking about the humility of the child. What is the true humility of the child? It is entirely trust and is dependent upon the parents. For everything everything. Honestly, worry doesn't even cross the child's mind. It entirely trusts and depends upon the parents. Whether it is a little child living in a hut of a poor man or whether it is a little child living in the palace of a king, one thing is there, they trust and they are dependent. And God says, conversion will make you like that. You will learn little by little by little by little or sometimes radically learn to trust and depend God for everything. So true faith is trust and dependence on God. And that is humbling. That is humbling. And when you are actually trusting and depending on God for everything it doesn't mean you don't have anything. In spite of having everything, you are still depending upon God. That is what is called humbling yourself before God. Therefore, scripture says, humble thyself before the mighty hand of God. Okay? For, for an instance, let's look at our familiar example. No man in human history could have ever undertaken a task... Like Moses was asked to do. Okay? Very familiar words for us. Acts 7 verse 22. This is Moses at 40. Okay? Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Again, another all. And was mighty in words and deeds. This tells you about Moses at 40. And he was actually disqualified at 40. Because he leaned on his wisdom, his oration skills, speaking skills, and his mighty deeds, his resume of winning wars for the pharaoh. And he was disqualified. So at 80, after 40 years in the wilderness, tucked away in the backside of a desert, unseen, unknown, unused. For anything great other than to look after some sheep which belonged to his father-in-law. Unseen, unknown, unused. He was a broken man. And he was a humble man. See, broken by circumstances doesn't necessarily make you humble. Okay, please remember that. You can be broken and bitter and unusable like Naomi. You can be broken by circumstances, proud, and still be unusable by God like King Saul. Or you can be broken and be unbelievably humble like Moses and be used like no man. Therefore, about Moses, God tells Moses to write this in Numbers 12. Now, man Moses was a very was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. He has to be unbelievably humble for God to tell him to write this about himself. Okay? So you need to realize, okay, a humble man is entirely, totally dependent upon God, and he trusts God. So it was Moses, so it was David. It will always show in your attitudes. Read again, familiar. Maybe you have forgotten. Shortest, I believe, Psalm in the Bible is by David in Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not, it's not proud, Jesus. It's not proud. Nor my eyes, lofty. Neither do I concern myself with anything that is too big for me, I don't worry about it. Think about it. Nor with things too Perform, go deep things, I leave it alone. When it is time, you will teach me. I don't break my head over these things. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. He says, inside my soul is like a child. I'm facing troubles everywhere. But you know what? I trust my God. I believe in Him. And I'm not going to worry my head about even my problem or things I cannot understand. I trust my God. Did you see faith is an act of humility? And great faith shows great humility. Remember two people Jesus said, great is your faith. Great is your faith to a man and a woman. Both were Gentiles. And they were really humble. One was a very high position, man of high position. The other was a woman of very low position. But both of them were humble. And God commended their faith. So please remember, when we get saved, salvation is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Okay? You and I, we humble ourselves before the light of the word we hear or we read or attract, whatever. You and I see, or I, let put me I. I see my sins. My unrighteousness, just as God sees it. Okay? That's the key. You see it as God sees it. You see your life just as God sees it. Then I see my need of salvation. And you realize, only God can save you. Nothing else can save you. So you have to see it the way God sees it. And then you realize, there is only one way. Only one way. And when you see it's the only one way, it is the end of self. So faith is the end of self, which we call sight. Sight is how the self walks. Faith is how the self cannot walk. So faith is the end of self. lot of people actually know it. it, see it. They know it is true, but they walk away. That is why Jesus said, I have come to call the sinners and not the righteous. Read Luke 5.32. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. What is he saying? He is saying, lot of people, when they read the word of God, when they see the word of God and see this is what God says, you are, they walk away. They walk away. They said, you are not factoring in my righteousness. I am walking away. Because they are not able to humble themselves before the word of God and say, I am what you say I am. They are not able to. They are not able to. And they walk away. So Jesus says, I have come to call the sinners. Not the righteous to repentance. Because the righteous won't repent. The sinners will. Now read this, okay? Now read this in conjunction along with what God says about all of us, all of humanity in Romans 3. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. They are all, another all, all sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. This is God's verdict. If this is God's verdict, God is saying, four nuns there. Not anyone and no any. None righteous. None who understands. None who seeks God. None who does good. No, not one. Question is, will you include yourself in that? If you don't, you declare yourself righteous and God cannot save you. Four things, he says. None righteous. None who understands. None who seeks God. None who does God. No, not one. Many who hear this, read this, words in scripture, walk away angry. Those who by faith hear and respond to the gospel, acknowledge, I am a sinner, I am unrighteous, I never sought you, I never understood your ways, there is only one who is good, it is you, and I realize, I never did anything good. You will see the responses in the Bible, Woe unto me, woe unto me. Remember the cry that arose from the lips of 3,000 in that multitude, one section of the crowd on the day of Pentecost? Cut to the heart, they cried. What shall we do? The rest didn't respond. It's not that there were only 3,000 there. There were many thousands there. Only 3,000 responded to the same message. So salvation is an act of humility. It's an act of faith. You cannot take humility out of faith. Because one has to acknowledge who I am according to the word of God. And then it has to reach out and accept the hand of health that is offered from the cross. No other way. Only the cross. And repentance is then the evidence of salvation. Are you getting it? Repentance is the evidence of salvation. Everything has to have some proof, right? The problem in the 21st century church is it has failed to teach and preach repentance. Coming to the danger of it, why we struggle today. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 1, I'm going to give you so many references about the same thing. But declare first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. That's one. Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts chapter 3, 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the lord acts chapter 1730 truly these times of ignorance god overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent matthew 913 go and learn what this means i desire mercy and not sacrifice for i did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance okay only when you repent there is mercy There is no mercy for those who don't repent. But only sinners will repent. Righteous won't repent. Those who consider themselves righteous don't repent. Okay? Understand what Jesus is saying. Luke chapter 24, 46, 47. He said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Second Corinthians seven ten. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but sorrow of the world produces death. And second Timothy chapter 2, 24, 26 A servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so they may know the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Are you getting the picture? Repentance and salvation are inseparable. You cannot separate it. Salvation is you repent and turn to God. This continues throughout the life of the believer. If you want to be continue to be saved. That's what Hebrews 7.25 says. That he is also able to save to the uttermost. He seeks us, we seek him. Draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And it's a continuous process all our life. You cannot stop. That's why he says he who endures till the end will be saved. Okay. The issue here is a false gospel Can create a false sense of security. False sense of security. Matthew 13 and verse 44. Again the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and hid. And for joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Did you see the difference between a true Christian and a religious Christian? A true Christian sees the glory of the King and the Kingdom. And the glory of this world fades away. Okay, that's, that's devil's temptation. Devil's temptation is offering us the glory and pleasures attached to this world. God offers the glory of the Kingdom and the pleasures that are forevermore. Man, when he sees the kingdom of God, he loses interest in the other. He's willing to trade everything for the other. It is like holding a candle to the sun. That's the difference. And he primarily sees that glory in the face of God's Son, in his relationship with Jesus. He sees the value of following Christ and believes no price is too high. He is willing to give up everything and exchange everything in this world for the life Christ is offering. Willing to exchange the old life for the new life that Christ is offering. But for that every step you will require faith. Every step will require faith. The first step is faith, till the last step is faith. That's what Romans 1, 16 and 17 says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Faith to faith. What does it mean? It means constantly there is a humbling before the word of God. Every step requires humility. Let me listen carefully to this statement. Okay, listen carefully. It is much easier to get followers by preaching forgiveness without repentance because it does not require change. It's much easier to get followers by preaching forgiveness without repentance because it does not require change from me. But when true salvation takes place, it brings radical change. That's why scripture says, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new positionally and throughout life functionally as we keep on understanding more and more about God and his kingdom there is constant change that is coming in by faith unto faith you submit before the word of God and experience the power of the gospel that's what Jesus was talking about in the parable about the sower in Matthew 13 the final one 23 but he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word understands it and bears fruit and produces. Produces. Okay? Different fold. Meaning you may begin with 30 fold because you don't understand so much. But as you grow in humility, in faith and you understand more, you start producing 60 fold. Okay, that's what I said. By the time you reach 100, I mean as you grow, you should be producing more. That's why Abraham produced the promised seed at 100. In his old age. Meaning that's the nature of the kingdom of God. As you grow older and older, you don't become less productive. I'm not talking in terms of number. I'm talking in terms of quality. That's why John the Apostle produces the greatest document about future at his last days. That's the book of Revelation. And Paul's most powerful two letters which has framed genuine pastors, ministers for centuries are 1st and 2nd Timothy, his last letters. Okay. So you need to realize that's what God is talking about. But this is the nature of salvation. You hear, you understand, you produce fruit. First time it will be only past mark 30 fold. That's okay. But you keep on producing. Because that's the nature of salvation. On the other hand, the birds that took the seeds away from the wayside, is Satan. He just takes the word away. Word away. And many people just allow Satan. It is not that Satan comes and takes it away. We allow him to take it away. Allow him to take it away.
1: Others just have an emotional experience,
0: yet within a few weeks or sometimes months, they just slowly fall away. Some others actually seems to become worse later. Because Satan exposes the world in its splendor to them, and they just fall away. But the real reason is this. They never made the exchange at the cross. They never made the exchange at the cross. That's the key Jesus puts in when he teaches in Luke chapter 9, 23, 20. He said to them all, If Anyone desires to come after me. He says, I call you, you are responding. In your response, you are desiring to come after me. Let me deny my, him, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will. He says, this is the key. There is a denial. Denial of self. He has to deny himself. He has to be willing to lose his life. So, if you look at the ones who initially followed Jesus, they were the simple ones who didn't have much learning, neither had they have any rep- what reputation in the first century does a fisherman or a tax collector have in the Jewish society? Nothing. They had neither learning nor a reputation. And they followed Jesus. Why, like once, like Nicodemus, they did not want to identify with him publicly. Because you see, it was an issue of image. It's an image. That's why they're not willing to deny themselves. If they denied themselves, coming in the pitch dark without anybody seeing you, it's not a denying yourself, it's a projection of self. Even though you are disturbed by the word he's preaching, you are disturbed, but you are still so self-conscious, you will not come where anybody can see you. You come in the dark, probably covered his face and all came like that. Didn't want anybody to see him coming to Jesus, because it's a question of self. Why? Because Jesus was not of the traditional ordained structure. He's not of the original structure. Okay? Second, he was a man of no reputation because, from no reputation, because he comes out of Nazareth of all places. No background of anybody in his house who was a preacher. Out of Nazareth comes preaching, so he has no background on top of that. Meaning he has no reputation, he moves into bad reputation, constantly slandered. So how do you, who is part of the Sanhedrin Archbishop by Catholic terms, Oh, Cardinal, 70, okay, so Cardinal, not even Archbishop, higher than that. Only 70 in the Sanhedrin, with such a huge name and reputation. How do you associate with somebody who is not of the preaching circuit, traditional accepted circuit, or who is such a bad reputation? Yet you know, when he preaches, he is true. They could deny his power. Miracles were happening. So they said, it is from Beelzebub. It is from Satan. They could deny his power or they could put a spin on it. That is Satanic power. But the problem was his teaching. They couldn't deny his teaching. They sent every teacher, every scribe, anybody to confront him and they were speechless. Because they knew his teaching was right. You see, you can always write off miracles of Jesus by saying it was demonic. But what about his teaching? speechless before his teaching. They could not refute it because they knew scripture and they knew his interpretation was right. Even if they were not publicly willing to accept it. They were not. They knew they couldn't refute it. Remember, this was the same issue after Pentecost in Jerusalem when the apostles started preaching. They were so mad. The Sanhedrin called them and said they have filled the city with their doctrine. They called them and threatened them and said don't preach. The issue was not the miracle. The issue was the preaching. If they had conducted the miracle and preached what they said, they would have no problems. The problem was not only the miracle was attracting crowds, the preaching was creating problem. Okay? So understand. That is the issue today. Issue today. The issue today is also the same. It is doctrine. False preachers... Preach forgiveness without repentance. Remember, long time back I said the six foundational doctrines: repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptisms, third laying of hands, six resurrection of uh, five resurrection of dead, and six. But three, four, five, six are not the um, important ones. Important one is one and two. So the attack will be always on one on two, because if one and two can be discredited, then your salvation is at stake. It doesn't matter what all other baptism you got, but if your one and two was false, then everything is at stake. Your eternity is at stake. So the first one they will always hit at is one. What is that? Repentance from dead work. So false preachers will offer forgiveness without repentance. And repentance in its simplest way means turning completely from our way. It's it's a process, but it begins to God's way. It will involve the surrender of our will and our rights. And acceptance of the will of God in our life. Repentance means that. And if we haven't done that, we are standing on false security. Because true faith says... In the small little thing, to the biggest, which may come one day. It doesn't come in one day, okay? It didn't happen with Abraham or Jesus in one day. It begins with the small little thing to the big thing. It begins by saying, not my will, but your will be done. In the small thing, and one day to the big thing. So it involves constant. listen carefully, comparing our decisions to the word of God. Because the word of God is a revelation of God's will. Any decision you take, you compare it with the word of God to see, is it right or wrong? And if your decision or what you're planning to do is wrong, and the word of God tells you something contrary, you say, not my will, but your will be done. This is the issue. Remember, this is the issue, what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 and verse 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good, acceptable and perfect will of God. What does he mean there? Verse 1 is talking about surrender. Verse 2 is talking about renewal. He says, Before renewal of the mind can take place, there has to be a surrender in a person's life. Without surrender, no renewal will take place. That is why people can read their Bible for years and years and years, yet renewal doesn't take place. It is simply because surrender has to take place before. Just because you have come here, some of you, no choice, come here, it is It is simply the day when you choose on your own to surrender. That's when renewal will take place. That's surrender. Where there is no surrender, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice is talking about surrender. There, there is nothing. You are absolute free bird. There is no compulsion on you. You can make your choice. Now, one of the questions, one of the answers Pastor and I give you is that when people don't come to church, one of the reasons we never ask and never follow up unless they are ill is that. It's your choice. We will not coerce you. We will not force you. You have already tasted. And if it is true, you will come on your own. And if you don't come your own, that's also a choice. Because without surrender Paul can only beseech beg. He cannot make them. He says, I have surrendered. I beseech you also surrender. Without surrender, no renewal will take place. It cannot take place. Our renewal of your mind is directly proportional. Maths, okay, which are directly proportional to our surrender. And the walk of faith is a series of surrender in your life. And if you don't surrender, I surrender, you don't surrender. We will our mind will not. And many people, honestly, in Christendom, I'm not talking about church here per se, I'm talking about Christendom, are still sitting on the fence like Elijah's day on Mount Carmen. Choose this day whom you will follow. If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, the people say, What are they waiting? They're waiting for the spectacle. And the only reason they drew near to Elijah when he said, "Come near," is because the prophets of Baal could not bring fire. If they had done one miracle, they would have followed them. Today, now that Jesus has come and spoken, and we have been the gospel, He allows lying wonders and silence, and allows people to be deluded, because He says, "If you don't believe the work of My Son on the cross and won't surrender, be fooled. You chose. You chose." That day he tied up heavens. They couldn't do anything. That's why they made a choice. Remember. Only when the prophets of Baal failed, Elijah stepped forward and he said, come near me. And they came and began the steps of repentance. Repairing the altar. Deep repentance. Digging a trench. Bringing what was valuable for them. After three and a half years of famine, Water was most valuable brought there. Well, While it is act of surrender, deep repentance, deep sorrow. He is standing there. He is emotionally going through this. He is standing there as an intercessor on their behalf. Is making them doing it. Emotionally, they may not be going through it, but he is going through, like Jesus does. When we cry out, we may not be feeling so much, but when he intercedes before the Father, he looks at us and what is. Missing in us, he fills it up in himself. That's what Paul will say. That if, if there was anything missing in Christ in you, I want to fill it up. I want to fill it up. He's looking at the congregation and says, "I know you are not broken, but at least make a step. I will be broken for you." Okay, you need to understand what he is talking about, and that's what it is talking about. And walk of faith is a series of surrender. The day Abraham stepped outside the city of Ur in Mesopotamia. Okay? City of Ur in Mesopotamia. That was his first step of surrender. And Hebrews 11 and verse 8 will say, Abraham went, obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. Because that's fine. He humbled himself and took a step need to realize, when he took this step of faith, the Bible says, his father went with him, his nephew went with him, and his wife went with him. He had a surviving brother called Nahor, who did not leave. So this is a family where one brother refuses to leave the Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham is the one who actually surrenders and leaves. The others are just following. So when they come to Haran, one stops and says, I am not going any further. And then when he dies, Abraham goes into the promised land. Lot follows, and later, when again there is a division or a choice given, Lot goes to Sodom, Abraham remains. You see, there are so many people to whom the same gospel is being preached. Reactions are different. There was only one man who actually surrendered. Therefore, in spite of all his mistakes, God is able to take him to the appointed end, because in the beginning, he had surrendered. God is not looking how wonderful your steps are. He says, do you stay surrender in your heart? Because if a man surrenders or a woman or a child surrenders in a hat, God can change your steps. But doesn't matter how religiously strict you are, if you are not surrendered in your heart, He cannot do anything with you. He cannot do anything with you. And therefore the righteous by works struggle with the gospel. Look at Proverbs 24 verses 15 to 16. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. See, the righteous man will fall to seven times. Abraham fell more than seven times. But he rose again. Why? Because of surrender. This is a righteousness that is by faith. And what does uh, Psalm 37, 23, 24 say? The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, it is not saying that righteous who walk by faith will not fall. He will fall. But because he has surrendered, because without surrender you can never walk by faith. Because he has surrendered, God will lift him up. This is the walk of faith. This is a righteousness that comes from faith and faith alone, a humbling before God. And if you and I do not continually transform and renew our mind with the word of God, Continually, the word of God or the will of God will no longer be good or acceptable and we fall away from faith. The word of God is good, acceptable and perfect. But because we are not walking by faith or began like Lot, began and when a choice is given, he looks and sees that is pleasing. Not the will of God. Will of God would have been to stay in Canaan close to his uncle, but he saw something else as pleasing. Why? Because the will of God is no longer pleasing or acceptable. Understand that. Look at how Jesus put it across in his, in his terms. If you love me, keep my commandments. And 1423. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my, keep my word. If you love me, keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now let me ask you a rhetorical question connected with that. If you don't know the word, how can you keep it? To keep the word, first you have to know the word, right? If you don't know the word, how do you keep it? So it does not mean anything how emotional you may get during worship. Or excited during prayer. The keeping of the word is the only evidence that you love God with all your heart. That is the value of doctrine. That is the value of doctrine. Because that is the doctrine of Christ. If you listen to the teachings that is around on internet and YouTube and all and all these Christian books in Christian bookstores, you actually listen to them and read them. They are all motivational speakers. They are. No? This famous guy in India, what is that? Sri, Ravira, no? Sri Sri and all. If you listen to what he speaks, and you listen to some of the things, people like Joel Austin, T.D. Jakes, the only difference between him is that he doesn't use the word Jesus. Otherwise, exactly the same. They are motivational speakers. They take Jesus out and speak the rest. They are motivational speakers. They are not preachers of the gospel. All bad speakers. Why do you think that many crowds come over there? The crowds come from Sri Shri's meetings in tens and thousands and all is simply because of what he speaks. They are motivational speakers. But that doesn't take you to the kingdom of heaven. That does not bring repentance. It only motivates you to, for success in the world. It doesn't bring repentance and a change to know what is a good, acceptable will of God in your personal life. And if you look at Sri Sri Sankar, whatever his name, he has also learned from all these mega church worship leaders. He does exactly like on the platform. So they watch. See, if you have to learn something, ultimately you have to go to a Christian to learn something. Because only he knows something about the true God. Look at them. And that's what God is talking about. We all need knowledge and understanding. But we know knowledge alone is dangerous because knowledge puffs us. Apostle Paul, when he met Jesus, had the knowledge of the Old Testament. But he had no understanding. Because he had no understanding, he ended up persecuting the same people whom God loved in Christ. He had knowledge, but no understanding. Once he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had understanding. See the difference between knowledge and understanding? He had understanding. And radical change took place. Look at immediately what happened. Three days later, a few days later, look at how it is written in Acts chapter 9. Immediately. Look at that. Immediately. He preached Christ in the synagogues. That he is the son of God. Then all the world were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has not come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus proving that Jesus is the Christ. Did you see what understanding did? Earlier he had knowledge of the scriptures. As soon as Jesus opened his eyes, he could prove from the same scriptures that Jesus is the one who is prophesied. Jesus is the one he's talking about. So what is the point here? The primary channel of deception, especially within the church, it's within the church deception takes place, is through false teaching. Through false teaching. That was exactly what Jesus meant about the illustration with the child. Let's go back to Matthew 18, okay? At that time, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself at this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Okay? So you understood what the context is. Now look at 6 and 7. Who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin? It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were drowned in the depth of the sea. He's not talking about children. He's not talking about children. He's talking about those who believe in him. False preachers come and cause them to go in the way of sin. He says, those preachers are damned to hell. Those preachers who causes these ones who have believed in me repented accepted walking by faith they come behind pulpits and change the message and say God understands how you are and all these junk and these little ones little in the sense that the humility of the child who came in because they don't have great knowledge of the word of God they have simplicity and they are taken away from the simplicity of the gospel and they fall in sin and God says you know what woe to them Woe to them. This is the end. What does he say? Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. But woe to them, that man by whom the offense comes. Woe to that man. Who powers the word. KJV will add in brackets, offense is the enticement to sin. Who entices them to sin. Doesn't put the strong walls around them and says, this is God's stain, that narrow path. They broaden it. They broaden it. And God says, woe to them. These are the little ones. Meaning, in spiritually, with the humility of child, in faith, received the gospel. But the wolves are after them. Wolves are after them. Okay. Wolves are after them. Wolves come in sheep clothing. Understand that wolves always come in sheep's clothing. Do you remember one thing? This in the book of Isaiah, Jesus, uh, God talks about the prophets of Israel, the priests of Israel. He says the priests of Israel, the prophets of Israel, are dumb dogs, dumb dogs. No, he said that because the only one who can identify a wolf in a sheep's cloth is the sheep dog. By smell. It's not fooled. It's not fooled. So he says, the priests and the prophets of Israel have become dumb dogs. They don't bark when the false ones have come. They don't bark. That's what God is talking about. Because the wolves are after the little ones, the young ones. That's what Paul will say in 20. Look at what he says in Ephesus. In the church in Ephraim is saying by, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He says, therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He's talking about the preciousness of each soul. The price that was paid is what gives you value. The value of a product is the price somebody is willing to pay, not in anything else. Okay, the value. So he says, this is the value of your flock and for I know that after my departure, as long as I'm here, nobody will come. Why? Because they know I will refute every preacher who tries to bring in heresies, false doctrines. But after I go, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourself, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Okay, Among you, he said, among you people will arise. He's not talking about then, after a period. And it happened. Church of Ephesus was gone. By the time John the Apostle writes the book of Revelation, it was gone. The wolves have risen and taken them away. From among you they will rise. And one of the f- Primary ways they do it is, I'm telling you, in 21st century, especially today, is they take repentance and only preach forgiveness. They don't stress on repentance. And if you take repentance out, there's no salvation. And repentance is real. It's drastic. It is, And it is continuous. Because as you understand the word of God, you realize, oh my God, I need to keep changing. This is what I thought. This is what it is. Lord, I repent. I'm changing the way I think. Changing the way I react. Changing. I'm changing constantly. So repentance is a continuous. But false preachers, many of them today come and say, "Use selective scriptures, saying that you have been made perfect in Christ Jesus. So there is no need for repentance anymore. That's not true. He's talking about the seed. Jesus is talking about the tree. Every seed has to grow up to become a tree. Are you a seed? The word in you, yes, it's perfect as a seed. But it has not reached the maturity of a tree. That means the seed as it grows, the old man keeps dying, has to die. They powered the gospel. That's a struggle people face. Powered the gospel signs and wonders. Siddhartha Thessalonians says, talking about the end will not come unless there is a great falling away from what? Faith. Unless you were in the faith you could not fall away. But you are falling away from the faith because the wolves have come. And they brought perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. They are all motivational speakers and they do it very subtly by making one You comfortable in your sin and second, pointing you to the world from which you were actually saved. Taking your eyes of God, taking your eyes of the coming kingdom and taking your focus to the world. Look at how they teach and the truth, how they don't focus on what things are really true. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 40, 41. Many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved? From. With? No. Be saved? With? No, we all want to be saved with this perverse generation, right? We don't want to be saved from this perverse generation. But that's what the Bible says. The Bible says it's the first Message Peter preached on that day is before he would baptize a single person, he asked for this commitment. Be saved from this perverse generation. That means come out of this world. This world. Then those who gladly received his word were, they did not sadly receive. They gladly received. They're not like Lord's wife who have to be dragged out of Sodom. No, gladly received. They did not get baptized with a long face. That's that's the first condition laid here for baptism. Come out and go into the water. You have come out of the world. Are you out of the world? Yes. Sure? Sure. Dead to the world? Yes. Then let me bury you. You are dead, right? Dead people should be buried. Otherwise they will stink. That's what Romans 6 says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You died then. Or do you not know as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father. Even so we should walk in the newness of life. He said do you know what baptism means? Dead to the world. Dead to the old way of life. There is an incredible radical shift. Do they teach you the seriousness of baptism? Seriousness of repentance from dead works, faith to a God, and the first baptism, doctrine of baptisms. But baptism of water, how serious it is. So what do they do? They create followers and not disciples. When you get baptized in water, what is your state of your heart? This is what Jesus says in Luke 14. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. Okay, Jesus was one person who did not want crowds. He didn't want crowds. If any man comes to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's talking about salvation is the process through which you get into discipleship. There is nothing as far as I read the Bible called saved but not a disciple. Because the commission itself is to make disciples. And this is the standard he set for discipleship. And it doesn't detach it from salvation. They tinker with baptism. They tinker with repentance. They tinker with turning towards God, a radical shift. They tinker with baptism. So they create followers and not disciples. They teach no separation. John 17, 14 onwards. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. And that's our struggle. Our struggle. The struggle which people face because the gospel is not priesthood. Properly and salvation is not radically experienced. People were, people struggle with peer culture, peer pressure. You see, when I got saved 30 years ago in the hostel room, there were very, very the, 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 the young men of my own age. Who mentored me were very good. One of the first things they did was that after. okay, I also prayed that prayer after. I didn't understand all repentance. But they taught me well. Trained me well. First thing they told me was this. After this. Next day they said come for Bible study. And I couldn't say no. Because I had said I have received Jesus. Next thing they said is there are 30 people in our own batch in the hostel. I am a believer. You are a believer. Go to the rest 28 and give your witness. Every room go. So in the next two, three days, every room, Catholic, Jacobite, Marthamite, Hindu, Muslims, all were there. Every room, I went and testified that I had accepted Jesus. You know what happened? After that, they never called me for anything which they did. And that was the reason they told me to go witness. That's how you put a line. If you don't put a line, they will put a line. You testify. You testify. That's what you're talking about. You're out of the world. They never called me for any of their card games or their movies and their drinking. I never drank, but I attended the parties. Everything stopped. They wouldn't call me. Okay, because it is radical. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one, because we have to go witness in the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The question is, is the word working that in us, separating us from the world? That's a question. That's a renewal of the mind. You don't think, walk, talk, act, dress, eat, anything like the world. It's a radical shift in your life, everything. You're now controlled by the word of God. Everything is controlled by the word of God. There is a shift that is taking place. Because you are preparing for something else. They never taught. The false preachers never teach you to choose sides. Matthew 12 and verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And who does not gather with me scatters abroad. He says what? Whatever you do in the world, if it is not done with me, it will be an absolute, total loss on the day of judgment. That's what happened to Lot. Everything that he did was without God. Therefore, when the day of judgment came, he lost everything. Actually, he lost his daughters and his wife. His daughters went into the incest, created abominations. His wife turned into a pillar of salt. He lost his house. He lost his possessions. He lost everything. You know why? Because he did not gather with him. Abraham lost nothing. Though he lived in tents all his life. So God says, they haven't taught you. They don't teach you to choose sides. They don't teach separation. They don't teach you to choose sides. They don't teach you what motivates you to serve. In Luke 16 and verse 33, Scripture says, It is, you cannot serve. God and mammon are the same. Sixteen thirteen, sorry, sixteen thirteen. you cannot, God. What motivates your service? They do not. They do not. They do not teach you. False spirituals will never teach you to check your motivation for changing jobs and all these things. Will never. I'm not saying you shouldn't if you get, but you have to be very clear. He's with you and he's leading you. He's guiding you. And not because of any other reason, because immediately you invert the gospel. Are you getting the picture? What happens? The results of not continuing in faith and in repentance. What happens if you don't continue in your faith? First Timothy chapter one verse twenty: "Of whom are Hamanus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme." They deny their faith. They start denying their faith. One John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. You realise actually, they were never belonged to the family of faith. They just used the family of faith. They were never part of the family of faith. I always tell my wife, I tell her, said you put so much of your life, your life literally into these children. How many of you think, how many of them do you think will follow Christ once they are gone from here? I said, if they don't, your life was a waste. They just used you. They just used you. It's what John is saying. They're not of us. As soon as they got their freedom, they walked away. They went back to their old ways. They never believed. They never repented. They never accepted. They took the goodness of God But they rejected God. Goodness. That's what's happening in US now. You have a safety, this thing that is created because of their forefathers. They have taken the blessings of God, the goodness of God. But they have rejected him in the public place and in the private space. Only any one of us could do that. That would be the greatest damage you could do to yourself. That's what the Bible is talking about. None of them were of us. They never belonged. Or, when you don't repent and continue in faith, what happens? Second Peter chapter 2, 22. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, a soul having washed to wallowing in the mire. What happens? They backslide. They go sliding back to where they were taken from. Back to the vomit. Back to the mud. Or, When they don't walk 2 Peter 2.15, they are captured by something else. They have forsaken the right way. Gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Life is ruled by mammon. Cain. Entirely captivated by that. And for that they will do anything. Reject their God. Reject their God. Think about it. You always think about it. The price God attaches to each soul. Says you are not redeemed with gold and silver. But by the precious blood. What Judas attached to Jesus life. How much? 30. It's a pittance. But he willing to sell him for a pittance. I believe if it had been offered 20. He would have taken 20. Sold him for 30. you don't repent and continue your walk constantly with walk, you're captured, you deny your faith. You actually prove you never belong. Or you could backslide and go back down into that mud. You're captured by the power of this world, Mammon. Or you're captured by rebellion. Jude 1 and verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Cain to Korah it's a long trip. Cain is the first rebel in the Bible. In that spectrum. Korah is the one who actually perishes in the rebellion. You know that the spirit of Cain is there. The spirit of Cain, the issue with the spirit of Cain is there. Once the spirit of Cain takes over you, you never repent. You always justify. You never repent. What does he say? Am I my brothers? keeper. And when he judged, he says, this punishment is too much for me. You will see the spirit of Cain and I have met so many of them. They are wanderers. They are wander. They never belong to any church. If you look into their life history, they have changed so many churches. They are perpetual wanderers. In their soul, they are wandering. Even if they sit in the church for 15 years, they are still wandering. Because they got the spirit of king. because they will never repent and change their ways. And God says, this is all signs of salvation, true salvation. You have to progress in your salvation. And often people never reach the end of their salvation. There is an end of salvation. That's where faith is so important and faith is a true act of humility. Look at the preciousness of faith in God's eyes. Who are kept by the power of God. Through faith for salvation. Okay? Please read scripture carefully. You are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. Okay? You are protected, kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Faith is your shield. If you are walking by faith, then you have hope that one day you will be partaker of God's salvation when Jesus appears. Okay, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor and glory of Jesus Christ when he is revealed. What is saying that? The only proof of your salvation is your faith. That's your proof. So you are walking by faith. You are growing in your faith. So your faith has to be tested. And every trial God sends in the ways of his children is to prove that your faith is genuine. Your faith is genuine. So every trial comes, you have an issue of fighting that trial, or going to the word of humbling yourself before God and seeking his way, how to handle this trial. That's a test of your faith. There are different ways you can handle it. But there's only one way which is right, which is the way of faith and go choose the way of faith for which your result may take a long time while the way of sight your result may be very fast. It takes humbling. And why is it so important? Verse 9 Because then you will receive the end of your faith. What is that? The salvation of your soul. That is the end of your faith, not the salvation of your body. It is salvation of your soul. That is why the Bible says God gives grace to the humble. God raises the proud. Who is the proud? Who will not submit before this. And it's a personal choice. Today, ask yourself, after your work and things you had to do, how much, how many of us use our body in terms of surrender, our will in terms of surrender to go into this? Into this. And God is not a respecter. In this city I remember meeting a young man many, 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 many years ago. Okay, He fell away later because of his own stupidity. But when he came to the Lord, he was like unbelievable. Came from a Hindu family. Beaten up for his faith. He accepted Christ. He had an encounter with Christ. Accepted Christ. Father uh, treated him. Told all the servants in the house. He is one of them. Let him eat with the servants. He was locked up in his room. And he was not allowed to put the light in his room once he goes in. So he had this door and knob and this keyhole from which the light used to come in one ray. And each night he used to read 15 chapters in that one line. In this city. In this city. So in the same city you have... All of you learning to read and write, school, college, proper, free food, don't have to cook, don't have to do anything, everything is made and given you. You have the time on your hand. And there were people who didn't have anything, but they chose. It's a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice people make. That is what faith means. I heard and I believe. This is it. This is Russia. This is Russia. And I'm going to, Lord, I'm going to humble myself before this. I'm making a choice. I'm making a choice by faith into eternity. That's what the Bible says about God gives grace to the humble. And your greatest act of humility is your step of faith by believing what is written. Faith comes from hearing. and Hearing from the word of Christ. Not by the word of any preacher who subverts the word of God. That's why you need to know your word. That's why Paul says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. If you want, there is no letter written to the Bereans. But if you read the letter written to Thessalonians, you will bend your head in this thing, meaning what a great church. You read Thessalonians in 1st and 2nd, what a great church, an incredible commendation he has for Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica. Yet it says the church in Berea was more noble than... Thessalonians, why? Because when Paul came and preached, scripture says, daily they searched the scriptures to see what he preached, agreed with the word of God. A set of people who only had the Old Testament and not the New Testament, checks the New Testament preacher to see if it tallies with the doctrines of the Old Testament because God is the same. And he commended them and said, good, good job, Berya, good job. That's how you should watch over your soul. You should put a premium on your soul. Like you put a premium on your body. Everything everybody is doing for your body. But he says in the same manner, put a premium on your soul. Don't neglect your soul. That is where faith comes in. Faith is the act of humbling before God. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves. Faith is an act of. And God gives grace to the Humble. Remember that old message, Romans 5? Having been justified by faith, even our justification is by faith. You accept who you are and you accept God's way. God says you have peace with God. First thing, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace. There's no other access. There's only one way you can access grace. That's through faith. Because faith is an humbling of self. My way, my thoughts, my ideas, my emotions, my will, all that for his ways, his thoughts, his emotions, his will. That is salvation. That's the road to salvation. That's why Jesus said, my righteous shall live by faith. As I close. To those who walk by faith, God says, all things... Work together for the good of those who love Christ Jesus. Okay, that's Romans eight twenty eight. And then eyes haven't seen, no ears heard. What is what God is preparing for those who? Did you see something similar about both? What is similar about both? All things work together for the good of those who. Not for those whom God loves. Because God loves the whole world. Nothing works out for them. The honest is on us. So if you love me, everything will work out for you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my word. said so if you keep my word, you search my word out, you hear me, you keep me, everything will work out for you. Good, because you love me. I haven't seen or ears heard what God is preparing for whom God loves. No. Or who loves God? How do you know you love God? What's the evidence? What's the evidence of salvation? Bring fruits according to repentance. What's the evidence that you love God? You walk of faith. It does not say whom God loves. It says who loves God. Not who God loves. That is why this comes. Once again, remember, this is where it comes. Your mind, your thought, every, look at the word, the world is going. The Christian world is going. From Genesis 1 onwards, no, they did a statistics study with pastors. 89% of Protestant pastors do not believe this is the inerrant Word of God. Protestant pastors, including Pentecostals. That's the key. And they are the ones who are preaching everywhere. They don't believe this is the word of God. So you come to a church where we believe every word is inspired. It will never change. You will struggle. They don't believe in Genesis one that God created. They believe in evolution. They no longer believe in that God created the male and female. They believe in gender is fluid. They don't. Just let's have Psalm 139 as a close and verse 13 up there. 139 and verse 13. Psalm 139, verse 13. For young girls all sitting over here. For you formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mothers. So let me ask you about this. All the young unmarried girls sitting over here. What do you think about the fetus in your womb one day when you get pregnant? Is it a living being? Is abortion a choice? It's got nothing to do. It's got to do with him. He formed the baby inside your womb. What do you have to say to that? And how do you have millions of Christians who are pro-choice? Million. These issues never arose in the Hindu community or Muslim community. These issues all arose within the church and then sanctioned by the rest of the world because you, God said, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, you are the city on the hill. He never said that to the world. He said it to us. So when the darkness in our eyes is the light, the dark is darkness, how great is the darkness? We created the evolution thing. We created the gender fluidity. We created The abortion debate. Nobody else did. We did. The church is to blame. And where has it reached? Who is the, who is the, who is the custodian or the head of the church of England? In America, the church of England, not America, UK. Who is the head of the church of England? The queen, the sovereign queen is the head of the church in England by constitution, by law. And you have the Queen, you have her son, Prince Charles, the next in line. Then you have Prince William, the next in line. You have his two sons, so the next in line. Then you have who? Prince Harry. Who married? Meghan? Merkel. What is he talking? She's pregnant. What she's saying that, my baby gender shall be fluid. I will let the child choose. So it has reached the British throne. And they have power to change the narrative in this world. Because everybody looks up to Buckingham Palace, a generation of young people. Understand what's happening. Therefore God says, My people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will hear you from from heaven. And I will heal your land. Nothing else is going to happen otherwise. So don't get fooled. When all these things happen, he's knocking at the door. That's the danger. He's knocking at the door. He's so close. He's knocking at the door. We pray. Father, this evening we just come to you, Lord. Young people sitting over here. In a few weeks, everything will be closed. They'll be going home on vacations. They will be free. No oversight. No church no pastor, no elders, that's when they will choose whom they follow. And I pray all these young ones will choose wisely. They will choose like Daniel. They will choose like Joseph. They will choose. They will choose, Lord. But there isn't much time left hoofbeats of the horsemen can hear in the spiritual realm. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is preparing to come. But when he comes to earth, will he find faith on earth? It's a question. A set of people who have humbled themselves before the word and have staked their life on the word, who have counted the cost And have chosen to gather with you and with you alone, Lord. Touch us, Lord. Touch every hearer. Touch, Lord, touch. And when you come, you will have a remnant on earth or sold out for you. Always. Thank you, Father. You brought us safely. I pray you reach us all home safely. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.